Herb Alpern, the team of Nebraska, Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. This is weekly Monday appearance, except due to travel. It's occurring on a Tuesday. The managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this particular edition of the program, as he does on all of them. Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. A particular note this week, a conversation about replacement level, not for the players on the field, but for the analysts who populate Major League Baseball's front offices. What is the marginal value of analysts who discuss marginal value one imagines with some frequency? Also, Team Fangraphs this past weekend took a trip to MLB Advanced Media's Manhattan offices. As Dave Cameron what he learned there, besides what Tom Tango looks like in the flesh. On the program, we also discussed Cuban defector Yulieski Guriel, what recent outcomes for certain Cuban players, for example, Rosny Castillo, recently outrighted by the Boston Red Sox to the minor leagues, what those fates have to do with Guriel's future in the major leagues and the likely compensation he'll receive. Finally, Dave Cameron takes a moment to deliver some ominous dietary advice to the host of this program. If you don't get a glass of milk in the next hour, you will die. That terrifying proclamation and others like it to follow... But first, a much less terrifying proclamation regarding SeatGeek, SeatGeek.com. I would like to proclaim, and I'm also contractually obligated to do so, that SeatGeek makes it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. What they do is to pull the tickets available on all other sites to aggregate them, as it were, into one location so that you never miss a deal. You can also set alerts for upcoming games. SeatGeek will let you know when ticket prices fall, and of considerable interest, I'd say, to this podcast listeners, SeatGeek gives a grade based on value to every ticket that's available, essentially allowing one to exploit inefficiencies in the ticket buying market. And of course, best of all, SeatGeek plays no cloak and dagger with its ticket prices. Unlike StubHub, for example, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from the beginning to the end of a transaction. For having endured this message, Fangraph's audio listeners are entitled to a $20 rebate. Here's how to claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app. Go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Enter the promo code Fangraphs. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. Fangraphs. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. What you should do is you should download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Fangraphs today or at your nearest possible convenience. Which we have completed the introduction portion of the program. We turn now to the conversation with Dave Cameron. What is it? This is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? That same managing editor, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. Yeah, we saw each other very recently. We did. Just adjust the levels here. What, um, you're back in your North Carolina home? I am. And everything is okay. Everyone's happy, mostly happy. Yeah, mostly happy is probably the most most accurate. I think that's that's the level for which you're generally shooting, right? Yeah, I think anything above mostly happy, you're you're doing pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever do anything any sort of practice where you say, mm, "I may be expecting too much out of life, and so I'm going to I'm going to reset my expectations." Um, no, no, I, I don't know how to practice that. Okay. Yeah. All right. I would uh, say my mom had a, a life philosophy of like, if you never expect anything, you'll never be disappointed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think that it's better to, to expect. Have some expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, today's 
um, exploration of practical analytics actually uh, is, I mean, it's practical f- probably for a number of the piece, uh, people uh, who listen to this program. And it also uh, shockingly is um, shockingly on topic as well. Okay. And it's a question that actually occurred to me while we were participating in a VIP panel in Staten Island. Yeah, yes, we did that. We did. And, well, well, actually, I want to get to some of the questions that uh, were asked um, on that VIP panel. But basically, uh, Fangraphs, much of Team Fangraphs was present in New York City this past weekend. And we spent Sunday at the Staten Island Yankees game and before the Staten Island Yankees game milling milling and mixing with uh, actually a surprisingly attractive and almost diverse group of people, diverse relative to the, to the typical offering. Yeah, it was a it was a different kind of uh, uh, white crowd. Yeah, well, no, but and I think that there were accidentally some women there, maybe. There were. Yeah. yeah. And so that happened. Um, couple, couple of people of color. There were there were a couple of people of color. There was actually one, someone. I think uh, there was a question towards the end. How can we get you know more people of color in this? And then there was there was literally one African American man who raised his hand and was like, "Hi." Yeah, but I think there was actually two in the room. Only one of them wanted to, <laughs> to Only one identify. Was brave enough. To, yeah. to, okay. The the um here's the question though. I was thinking there's a there is a weird dichotomy at play in baseball front offices in particular, right? Baseball front offices. Um, have, of course, the last, what, 10, 15 years, have hired a lot of young, highly educated people uh, to work in analytics in their front offices. And what they have done, um, what they have done is they've been able to essentially, for the benefit of the team, r- uh, crawl closer to something like reaching um, optimal salaries for players. Does that make sense? Uh, I don't. I don't think I would describe it that way. I would say that uh, over the last, I don't know, 20 years, teams have decided to spend their money more efficiently. So, like, I don't think that the size of the pie has changed that dramatically. I know okay, uh, right. some people have argued, but I think that they've gotten better about not just spending it on bad players. Right. So, they, yeah, and in, in many cases, for example, offering extensions um, earlier and earlier in players' careers uh, is a way of save money. I think that what. It, did it start with the Evan Longoria extension? No, it started back in like the mid '90s. I think uh, John Hart did this with Cleveland, where they had like Albert Bell and Carlos Baerga and uh, Kenny Lofton and that whole group, and he kind of uh, spearheaded the idea of like locking up your guys early. Right. No, while the while those these young employees though have probably benefited their teams um, in terms of making spending the money more efficiently. One thing I've noticed is that. These young people are not particularly good at getting money for themselves from the teams. That's true. And I'm, I'm, I guess I'm curious about that because they're intelligent in a way that benefits the teams almost twofold because they're, because in addition to, uh, identifying ways of spending that money more efficiently, uh, part of it is that they are essentially, um, they're hurting their own earning power in the process, it seems. Well, I mean, so to, Yes, that's true to an extent. Uh, okay. I think I think what we've seen is kind of the uh, democratization of ideas uh, in terms of um, you know analytical ideas taking hold in front offices, and they're actually fairly easy to uh, you know transfer, right? So it's not like only a few people have this 
special skill to know how to value baseball players. Some people are better at it than others, but uh, the the general concepts of how to to value performance and and turn that into you know kind of a, a financial model uh, can be transferred from one person to another, and they can be taught. And so if you have a large number of people who've been learning kind of player evaluation models over the last 20 years, which I think is the case, then you have a pretty large uh, talent pool from which to hire. And, and up until this past year, there weren't a lot of these jobs in Major League Baseball. Each team had, you know, maybe one or two uh, analyst positions. Some teams didn't have any. For the most part, there were, you know, only 30, 40, 50 analyst positions, something like that. Uh, we saw an explosion over the winter with teams really staffing up. But uh, historically, there's been a large supply of, you know, competent people who are intelligent, who could, you know, offer something similar, uh, some kind of similar advice to the, you know, 7,000 other people competing for that job, mm-hmm. and uh, not just not a large uh, number of jobs that those people were competing for. We talk about, what, marginal, marginal value for yeah. contracts for players? Uh-huh. What is the marginal value of, of analysts in front office? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why pay has been low, is baseball teams have assumed that there's just not a lot of marginal value. I mean, we're obviously pretty familiar with the concept of replacement level. Mm-hmm. Uh, the replacement level uh, baseball analyst is pretty, pretty high in terms of, uh, at least according to, to most teams, um, their ability to make recommendations, to, uh, you know, potentially make projections. The real differentiators and guys who get paid are guys who have been able to write code, manage databases, uh, do infrastructure, IT uh, kinds of things. Analysts who can you know, do those kinds of things or um, have abilities in physics or uh, kind of advanced mathematics and, and can build more complicated models, uh, those guys have been able to leverage their their um, ability to go work in another field, say for Google or Apple or one of these other companies that would pay a, a real competitive wage for people who are, you know, just coming in saying, look, I've read Bill James and Fangraphs and Rob Meyer, and I'm competent in sabermetrics, and I can uh, kind of create a create a model based on uh, linear calculations, and I can do some stuff in Excel and SQL. There are a lot of those. Yeah. Should – what if analysts were to unionize? I mean, you can unionize all you want. It doesn't change the supply and demand equation. Right, but if you if, if there's a degree, does this happen among workforces generally, where they say we recognize there are a lot of qualified applicants, but we are we are getting paid much less than the sort of than we're worth essentially, right? I mean, so there's two ways of looking at replacement level, maybe the the degree, to, like the ease with which the teams could, or the you know the the major league organizations could replace uh, analyst A with analyst B, right? But then there's also another sort of replacement, or it's at least provision of marginal value, where you say this is the this is how much we're paying analyst A, but here's how much uh, like revenue essentially he's generating for the organization, and I assume that by that measure analysts are being underpaid. Yeah, but I think that's. Um I mean, not to insult your question. It's a silly way of thinking about a pricing. Okay, no, you right? can, you you've insulted me all the time. I don't see yeah, why, I know, I know. why we're. But now I'm now. insulting your questions specifically. <laughs> so let's say you were dying, right? You're like uh, you are malnutrition, malnutrient, nutriented. I don't know whatever that word is. Malnourished. That's, malnourished. That's let's say that uh, Say you're malnourished and yeah. you are in like desperate need of milk, and if you don't get uh, you know a glass of milk in the next hour. You will die, and you have no milk in your house. So 
the value of milk to you, the utility of milk to you is extremely high. Mm-hmm. How much should you pay for a gallon of milk? I'd pay whatever I could. Why wouldn't you pay like three forty nine or whatever the going market rate is at the store? Oh right. Because there's a lot of milk. Like you don't have to pay a thousand dollars for a gallon of milk just because you need milk and it will have a huge utility to you. You could logically argue that you should do that if there was only a gallon of milk and one person standing next to you was like, I have all the milk in the world and I will sell you this milk, but only at my price and you you only have one seller, then logically and rationally you should buy it from them because it will preserve your life. But in a, in a market where like every corner store and every deli and every gas station in the world sells milk, uh, you should pay three forty nine regardless of the utility it has to you because there's so much milk available. What if Martin Screlly has bought all the milk? Uh, well, I think in that case, you probably try and come up with like knockoff milk. Maybe you go, go find a goat, milk it yourself. It's true. Yeah. Well, goat milk helped me in this, in this scenario. Yeah. There are a lot well, of milks out there. Milking Martin Shkreli. I don't think he'd appreciate that. But. <laughs> well, I don't think most Americans care what he'd appreciate. <laughs> uh, all right. So, so there's really, I guess the point is, all right. I guess I, I noticed a, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's irony. It might be irony, in a case of irony, where you have this group, this highly educated and intelligent population, who are good at making money for someone else, but not necessarily themselves. But you're suggesting that it's because there are a number of other people who'd be willing to do their job. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty basic supply and demand economics. So it's like there are a lot of people who can do what they can do. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a, a similar argument is made for teachers, right? Where like regularly you hear people say. Teachers are the most important people, you know, they have huge influence on our children, huge influence on our future. The job they do is, is highly important. They are massively underpaid. I mm-hmm. think you, you can certainly argue that for the quality of work that they do or the, the importance of work that they do, there's no question that the, the market rates for teachers are too low, except for a lot of people have the capability of going to school and becoming a teacher. And so there's a large supply of people who can do the job, which keeps wages down. And I think uh, wages and prices in general are essentially a function of supply and demand, not a function of how valuable the thing you're doing is. Who conceived of this notion of supply and demand? Uh, you know, I guess Adam Smith, maybe. Yeah, all right. Yeah. I was just an idiot's question, but I didn't know yep. the answer right away. I know that it is a fundamental concept in economics. Yeah. But uh, what, Adam Smith probably, we're saying? I mean, you know, uh, I would imagine other people had a, a grasp on supply and demand before he came around, but he wrote a whole bunch of stuff and gets credit, so let's credit Adam Smith. For yeah, right. There you go, Adam Smith. Um, well, I, like I said, we might get to some of the questions which um, which we addressed in the, the VIP panel, uh, uh, hopefully allowing all listeners to feel like their own sort of VIP. Um, here's a question I want to ask you for um, in the um, – and the great tradition of asking idiots questions on this program, I find that Rusny Castillo, the Boston Red Sox Rusny Castillo, was recently outrighted. Correct. Can you uh, can you just remind me what outrighted means? So it means he was removed from the 40-man roster. Oh, okay. So that's what outrighting is. Yeah. So ha- in order to get a player on the 40-man, off the 40-man, you have to put him through what's called outright waivers. Uh, which means that every team in baseball has the right to take him and just take his contract and you get nothing in exchange. But when you have a negative value asset like Rusni Castillo, you're pretty confident he's going to clear waivers. Uh, so 
once they do clear outright waivers, you can then outright them to the minor leagues and assign them to still be in your minor league system. Um, the contract remains in place, but they're just no longer on the 40-man roster. Uh, veterans with enough service time have the ability to reject this assignment and can become a free agent. So if you have like a, you know, a 35-year-old who gets outrighted, he doesn't have to stay with the organization. He can be like, peace out. I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to attempt to uh, find another contract. Yeah, right. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, guaranteed contracts for veterans, they actually continue to get paid their salaries. So, like, uh, Jose Reyes mm-hmm. uh, was uh, released by the Rockies. He was essentially outrighted. Uh, he was removed from the roster, and they're going to continue paying him uh, his his previous contract regardless. Rusny Castillo does not have enough uh, service time to, to um, opt out of his contract or opt, opt into free agency while still being paid. So he could choose, if he wanted to, to leave. 50 million or whatever he has left on his contract on the table and, and go become a free agent, but he's not silly enough to do that. So he will stay in the Red Sox organization, continue getting paid under the terms of his contract and just not be on the 40 man roster anymore. Right. You notice, uh, you note the $50 million he's still owed. Uh, this, uh, the last, uh, say month or so has been, um, revelatory, at least with regard to, um, some, the current status of, um, some some Cuban players who were given large contracts. We've discussed on this program, I think, both Alex Guerrero and also Arabarena. Arabel, Arabarena. right. Arabarena, yeah. Guerrero, of course, was what? Well, which which one of these was he? He was just released. Yeah, he was uh, cut by the Dodgers, and as far as I know, has not been picked up by anybody else. Right. In the meantime, Arborena has been – I think he's uh, currently being disciplined, yeah? He's suspended for the season without pay. Without pay, okay. So, um, And then uh, and then we have Rosny Castillo, who was uh, given quite a bit of money, and uh, uh, by all accounts seemed to, to be quite promising as far as the, uh, the tools are concerned. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at, like, the recent, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, the – the prognostication or the kind of the the effects of signing Cuban players had turned out quite well for the signing teams. Like Yasiel Puig looked like one of the five most valuable players in baseball at one point a couple of years ago. Jose Abreu was an absolute monster in his first season. Uh, Aroldis Chapman, Leonis Martin, like the success rate on recent Cuban players had been very high. And then they basically all went – I guess not all. Chapman's still very good. But many of them saw their values decline precipitously. Abreu has not been very good this year. He was mediocre last year. Uh, Puig hasn't hit very well for a couple of years now. Um, Casmio looks like a, a fairly large bust at this point. Uh, Guerrero is a total waste of money. Um, so the, and the actually, the last one you mentioned, uh, I think Leonis Martinez actually rebounded a little bit. Martinez bounced back a bit in Seattle, yeah. So uh, it's not like these guys are all completely worthless. Uh, but I would say, you know, the Rangers, when they signed Martinez to, what, a $15, 16000000 million contract, I don't think they thought, like, after a couple of years in the big leagues, they were going to trade him for Tom Wilhelmson. Yeah, because uh, and I don't think Tom Wilhelmson has played particularly well of late, has he? Has he? No. They would have been better off uh, cutting Julianus Martin than, than acquiring Tom Wilhelmson, given how he pitched this year. Negative uh, negative dollars? Uh, yeah, I believe the area was like 11 when I sent it to the minors. Oh, well, that's not so good, is it? Yeah. Um, uh, oh, well, all of this is uh, somewhat relevant because there does seem to be quite a bit of interest in another Cuban player. Can you tell me a little bit about mm, maybe Ulieski? Yulieski Guriel. Yeah, can you tell me about Yulieski Guriel? 
Gurriel, yeah. Gurriel. Uh, Tell me about yeah, him. Yeah, so he's, a, he's an infielder, uh, mostly a third baseman, but has played some second base as well. Uh, I believe he's 32, so he's uh, been in, in one of the, the shining stars of, of Cuba's league for the last decade, one of the best players in Cuba, or maybe the best player in Cuba. Um, for a long time, it was speculated that he would try and defect, and he never did. Uh, finally, this year, uh, probably seeing that the new CBA is likely to change some of the rules and international signings, he and his brother uh, left Cuba in order to become free agents and, and sign with a big league team. Um, so Guriel is currently a free agent. Um, I think the the book on him is not dramatically different from Hector Oliveira in terms of overall expected performance. Like it's a line drive hitter with expected to have good play discipline, uh, but not necessarily a big power slugger or necessarily the most athletic guy. Um, so probably looking at a guy who's going to derive most of his value from his bat, and I think teams are questioning uh, or at least uncertain about what kind of level of offense he's going to provide uh, given his age and that he hasn't played uh, competitive baseball in a couple of years. Uh, I do think that the Hector Oliveira uh, disaster. <laughs> like, I, I think we could we could categorize the Oliveira signing a year later as a as a total total miss. Um, maybe Oliveira will turn it around, but he was supposed to be a short term value uh, who has provided no value uh, since getting to the big leagues and is now suspended for domestic violence. Um, I think Oliveira is going to hurt Guriel, and the teams will look at him and say, you know, we don't necessarily know what we're going to get short term. You're 32. Players aren't aging very well anymore. Um, I I would expect that Guriel. Uh, could be a valuable piece and it might be even an above average major league hitter in the not too distant future, but there's a lot of uncertainty there. Okay. So you, you do think that the, maybe the recent, uh, and not, not merely performance, but, uh, other, there's other considerations involved too of Cuban players, uh, is going to influence the, the earning power of Guriel. Yeah, for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think there's any question that like the success of Abreu and Puig and Chapman and a few other guys created a little bit of a bubble in, in Cuba. And I think uh, um, some people have written about this, about how like the price differences between Cuban players and, and similar prospects from other countries got to be ridiculous, where, you know, if you were from Cuba, you got 10 times what a what a similar prospect from another country would be. Um, so well, I think, wasn't it also because, um, especially given the age of a lot of the Cuban prospects, that they were not governed by the same constraints regarding international free agency? Yeah, that is true. So if you're over the age of 22, you're not in the bonus pool allocation. But we've seen, you know, Japanese players, Korean players come over. You see, like, Young Ho Park signed for $15 million on a four-year contract. Young Ho Kong uh, got almost nothing when he came over. Uh, Dae Ho Lee had to sign a minor league contract this winter. So, you know, if we look at Guriel and say, you know, maybe he can play third base, but is he going to be a significantly better hitter than Park or Lee or one of these guys who are, you know, they played in, in um, you know, professional leagues. They're older players. They didn't need time in the minor leagues. They're not subject to the bonus pools. Uh, should Guriel be expecting, you know, $60, $70 million like Oliveira and Castillo got uh, when when guys like Park and Kong are getting 10 or $15 million? Probably not. Well, yeah, so I was going to actually ask uh, uh, with, about the Korean player now uh, because there are a lot of examples of them playing quite well. Yeah. Uh, I, players from Korea, for example, I don't know if you mentioned Hun Siu Kim. Yeah, I didn't mention him, but he has played well when the Orioles got around to trusting him. Yeah, right. Well, I believe that there was uh, there was a bit of panic in the Orioles camp, right? When during spring training, he was, what, like 0 for 20 or something like this? Yeah, he started off very poorly, and they, they overreacted to spring training performance. 
Right, and uh, ever since that he's been he's been allowed to play, uh, he's he's uh, hardly striking out at all. Uh, yep. something, something near ten percent, something like that. He's walking. He's uh, I don't think it, he's necessarily exhibited much power. No, uh, but if he's you know Nori Aoki or something, that's a perfectly serviceable major league player. Right. So, do you think there's a bit of uh, a recalibration with regard to how teams uh, conceive of of Korean players? Yeah, I would I would think that you'll see prices on uh, Korean hitters go up pretty mm-hmm. soon, given that like Kong was kind of the first one. The test came over, succeeded. He opened the door for Park and Lee to some extent, but teams were still pretty reticent to to commit big money uh, or really any money uh, to those guys. But you know, Lee is really doing really well in a part time role in Seattle. Um, Park started off really strongly, has slumped a lot, but you know he looks like kind of like a Chris Carter type. Uh, player, which, you know, if you can get a, a Chris Carter on a four-year deal for three or four million bucks a year, like most teams in baseball would do that. Right. So um, I don't think that there's been enough of a price adjustment up on Korean players, and there probably needs to be a pretty significant one down on Cuban players. So do we, wait, do we know, are there any, um, and, and what I don't want to do here is force you to, um, is, oh, I don't want you to feel like you're being forced to uh, regurgitate a name. Are there are there any Korean players though who are obviously bound for the majors anytime soon? Yeah, I'm not sure actually. Uh, okay. There are you're allowed are, to say that. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I know there are uh, people who are um, Asian baseball aficionados and and would be able to answer that question effectively. Uh, I'm not one of those. Okay. Um, we talked about uh, some of the uh, sorts of transactions that are current. Uh, we talked about being outrighted. We talked about being DFA'd. You cited Jose Reyes, who was what? He was DFA'd and then released, I suppose. Correct. Yeah. Uh, but I do want to ask you about, about Jose Reyes. Um, you There are what, some rumors that he might go to the New York Mets who are without a third baseman now, but you suggested today that probably Danny Valencia is a more likely uh, possibility for them. Yeah, I don't get the Jose Reyes reverse to the Mets at all. I mean, besides the fact that he played there and was successful there, and I guess there's fans who remember him as a good athletic young shortstop from a decade ago, like, the Mets have a second baseman who's playing really well in Neil Walker. If they wanted to move Neil Walker to third base in order to replace David Wright, they could, because they have a, a pretty good young second base prospect named Dilson Herrera, who could easily come up, who's got major league time, who's playing well in AAA, and is almost certainly a better player than Jose Reyes at this point. Um, so if you're considering signing Jose Reyes to play third base, well, that's silly because Jose Reyes is not a very good player and not a very good third baseman and has never really played much third base. Um, if you're com- considering Jose Reyes to play second base, just call up Dilson Herrera instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're trying to upgrade your lineup, uh, you probably need a right-handed hitter uh, who can do some damage against lefties. That's not Jose Reyes. Uh, I, I mean, besides sentimentality, I don't, I don't totally understand the Jose Reyes Mets rumors. Yeah, and I also would assume, or uh, just my initial impression is that whatever you would benefit uh, from in the way of sentimentality, you would uh, immediately concede that by the sort of uh, uh, cloud that hangs over Jose Reyes's name at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's probably a fair question to ask whether you know, like, um, we should really expect that players who. Uh, are suspended under the domestic, uh, domestic violence agreement should really be like blackballed. We say, oh, there's no place in baseball for a guy like this. It's not like he got a lifetime suspension. He served the suspension mm-hmm. uh, that was handed down, and so now he's eligible to return. And, and I don't think we should say, like, oh, no team should sign Jose Reyes because he had a domestic violence incident this past winter. But if you're the Mets and you're, like, you know, uh, looking to make your team better, 
I'm not entirely sure why you'd take on the negative PR that comes with bringing in a, a guy who was recently suspended mm-hmm. um, in order to not make your team any better and block a prospect who's better than you than the guy you're signing anyway. Right. Yeah. Do Do you have the Do you know the basic I the basic um, causes for Major League Baseball's initiative, recent, more recent initiative with with domestic violence. It, um, I mean, I, I, I so I suppose like what the ideal case would be just a um, an outpouring of sympathy for the victims of it. Although it seems unlikely that that accounts for 100% of the decision. Um, I assume somehow distancing themselves from the NFL might be yep. part of it. That's probably the, the biggest. I mean, I think the other leagues looked at what the NFL has done over the last few years, not just with domestic violence, but also concussions and just basically everything, but domestic violence as well, and said, that's a disaster. How do we not put ourselves in that position? And so they've, Major League Baseball has tried to be somewhat proactive in saying, look, we're going to try and create some baselines that uh, make it appear that we are taking this issue seriously. And so um, I think... They're, they have crafted over the last year, uh, or maybe even over the last six months, uh, some harsher penalties for domestic violence situations, so that where it doesn't appear that they're just uh, giving free reign to people like, you know, Greg Hardy in the NFL. Right, right. Which, uh, of course, are in them. Uh, I mean, uh, yes, quite a bit of criticism, I suppose. Yeah. Because uh, valid, yeah. valid criticism. Valid criticism. Right, right, right. Um, uh, let's move on from that. I want to ask you this thing. Um, I don't know if this is top secret or not, but I can delete it uh, if, if need be. But uh, you and I and other certain members of Team Fangraphs took a trip to visit Mike Petriello at uh, Major League Baseball's Advanced M- Media Office. At the offices of Major League Baseball Advanced Offices Media. of, yes. Yeah. What did you learn there, Dave Cameron, that you were allowed to divulge? Publicly, um, that a, a certain uh, person working in the BAM offices uh, plays in a fantasy league where the the trophy is a signed golden Mike Piazza trowel. Oh yes, yes, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, so that was a fun thing. I, yeah, I did. I didn't know there were golden trowels, and I didn't know that Mike Piazza had signed one. Had it been dipped in gold? Did you, what was the? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I don't. I would imagine it wasn't real gold. Otherwise, probably it would have been sold. Yeah, maybe gold paint or golden spray paint or yeah, something like that. Golden this. spray paint would be my guess. Yeah. I know that uh, uh, my parents, they had my first shoes bronzed. Does that still happen? Did, did that ever happen I before? I don't think so. Were you wearing them at the time? Yeah, it was a little bit of a Han Solo situation. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I don't. Uh, no, there was uh, no. They, they, I remember when I was a child. I have no idea where they are now, but I remember seeing them in my room. They were my first shoes, and they were bronze. I don't know why you would leave them in my room because what yeah. would I care? So I, let's let's give our child something heavy that he can hit himself with. Yeah, right. And I was also uh, four or five years old. I didn't. Really, I don't think I really understood the gravity of the event. Yeah. These are my first shoes. I certainly, uh, I certainly don't have them now. I guess that's the point. Yeah, that's. Uh, I don't think that's a thing. I will not be bronzing my child's shoes. What of substance are you allowed to share from the trip to Elbam? Um, Elbam? Is that what we're calling it? I don't know. Oh, ML, ML, MLBAM or just BAM is what ML, we're calling it. Just, yeah, BAM. just BAM. Yes, BAM. I'm sorry. Yeah, what did I say? MBAM? BAM. Sorry, that's just the name of a, a boy band I just created. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what their deal is, but um, yes, uh, BAM. We visited BAM. 
Yeah, we, we visited, uh, baseball yeah. So like Europe. Mike Petriello, former Fangrass author, now doing really good work at Major League Baseball, uh, friend of the site, uh, invited us to come take a tour of the offices and, uh, we had a, we had a nice discussion with, uh, one of the lead engineers in the StatCast, uh, system and, uh, Tom Tango, who's, uh, recently joined Major League Baseball. Um, uh, he was there in person and we got to meet Tom and, uh, he sat in a room with us. And we just, we saw his face. Yeah. So we, we now, have all, well, not all, but a large portion of the Tangrath staff has now spent time hanging out with Tom Tango. Uh, and yes, we called him Tom Tango even though that's not his real name. That's not his real name, yeah. But I uh, thought, I thought he was, uh, he was polite. He was. Yeah. Yeah. He was polite. And the engineer of whom you speak, uh, also, I would say, uh, humored us pretty considerably. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, had some good answers to some questions and, and, uh, uh certainly, um, you know, made it seem like Major League Baseball is uh, uh, aware of some of the issues that have been raised around StatCast data and is working pretty hard to fix them. Right. Well, they, uh, yes, and I think that uh, he he at least was very upfront about some of the limitations, too, I thought. Yeah. I mean, um, it definitely wasn't a sales job. Like, no, no, had, no, they, no. We weren't brought in to be, you know, uh, snowed in by the, uh, you know, a massive PR arm. It was a pretty frank discussion about like this is what the system can and can't do, and this is how we're trying to fix it, and this is where we won't be able to fix it. So we'll have to come up with workarounds. And right. Uh, well, I mean, it's, so a lot of the stadiums, most of the stadiums have been built, uh, were built before the installation of the Statcast. All, all of the stadiums. All of the stadiums. Yeah. Were. No stadium. No stadiums opened this year. No stadiums. Right? But the Brave Stadium. The Brave Stadium built after built first. Post-StatCast stadium. <laughs> right. So but I'm pretty sure they didn't design it with StatCast in mind. Right. So that's one thing you look because the, because the cameras are positioned in one place and, um, we learned a little bit about some of the reasons why, especially last year, I think, maybe why ground balls, certain types of ground balls, certain types of batted balls were not measured because essentially you're dealing with, uh, what, radars? Was that right? Radar, yeah. So the track, so the StatCast, and, the, and you know, this isn't anything they haven't said publicly. StatCast is essentially the merger of two different technologies. So TrackMan is a radar-based technology, which mm-hmm. is uh, used to track the pitch from the mound to the plate and then uh, contact and the initial flight, but not, not too far into the field. Uh, and TrackMan's been around for a while. Uh, and, and so Major League Baseball essentially merged TrackMan's radar system with a, uh, I believe the company was called Cryon Higo, is a, um, European company that had done, uh, optical tracking with cameras, uh, for, for professional soccer teams in, in Europe. And, um, so they combined a radar, uh, approach for the pitch with an optical tracking approach for the ball and the fielders. And so the system essentially, uh, hands off between radar and camera and they, they combine the two in order to produce the full stat cast, uh, you know, data set. Right. Right. And, but if, if you have, uh, in certain situations, for example, if you have a ball moving directly away from the radar, I think, yep. uh, it becomes harder to read. Although I think they also were able to address the problem. Uh, yeah, not entirely. I mean, there right. still are balls that are, uh, difficult to measure or misread. Uh, they, but, uh, you know, I think one of the things that the engineer mentioned is like they've, uh, identified some common traits that mm-hmm. they can flag and, and basically create an algorithm that says, if the data looks like this, question it and say it's probably not real. And so, right. uh, they've built in some, uh, safeties so that we don't get too many examples of, uh, you know, oh, this ball was hit 700 miles an hour. You're right. Well, I think that what, uh, at one point there was a question about a 127 mile per hour ground ball that Daniel Murphy had hit, something along those lines. 
Yeah. Which was likely not hit at, actually at 127 miles per hour. Yeah, they, they figured out pretty quickly that that was a data error. Yeah, right. Um, and there were other things like that. I guess I got, uh, what I was, what I uh, became aware of was all of the possible variables, all of the variables that were necessary to consider, and I think which, when you go from the, the theory of having these, uh, the camera and the radar to the practice of it. Uh, yeah. Because reality has a tendency to, to mess with you. Yeah, I mean, implementing this technology is not easy, right? So, yeah. like, there's just so many things, you know, in terms of, like, ballpark-to-ballpark calibration and weather and so many things that you can't control, really. Um, I mean, you can control the calibration to some degree, but it's going to be very hard to get them all on the same exact uh uh, playing field, and so you know, Tom Tango has mentioned like one of the first things he wants to do now that he works for Major League Baseball is create park effects and uh, figure out where the systemic biases are. Uh, random biases and random errors. There's nothing you can really do about those, or you can you can limit them as much as you can, but you're never really going to be able to eliminate them. But systemic ones are the ones that you really care about, where you say like you know, Kansas City, the ball is coming off the bat two miles an hour faster than it is in Houston. We need to adjust for that. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to adjust for it. They're going to, or they are, they have, or they're going to. They have, or they're going to. Uh, they're working on it. They're working on it. That's how it is. Uh, we're we're approaching uh, the fulfillment of your obligation to the program. Uh, as I said, though, there was a uh, we did participate in a panel uh, before the Staten Island Yankees game on Sunday. And we I'm did. curious, what? We did. I'm curious if there's a, if there's anything from that in particular that you remember uh, in terms of questions or, or anything from the weekend, from our weekend together in general, uh, that you uh, that you learned this weekend. Well, my favorite part of the panel was uh, when the Staten Island Yankees uh, uh, representative who was who was hosting the panel was Mike Holly. Uh, yes, Mike Holly. Yes, asking all of us to introduce ourselves. And so I went down the panel, and I think it started with Nan Zimborski and Jonah Carey and myself, Ben Lindbergh. Emma Spann and Meg Rowley, yeah. and uh, we had all given our introductions, and then you began to introduce yourself, and he just cut you off and <laughs> began to move on to the questions, and everyone chuckled, and then you started again, and then he cut you off again, and you never, you never did <laughs> get to introduce yourself. No, I didn't. That was really, really my favorite part. You know, he said, he said that he didn't know what it, what had happened, but it, the timing on his part was so precise. Yeah. Because uh, like he both really, times you yeah. started talking and then he just went right over you. He really got me, yeah. and uh, I find it hard to believe. And even afterwards, he he was playing, he was being coy about it. Yeah, I think uh, he he recognized that the less you talk, the more successful the panel would be. I think that worked out. Yeah, and I don't think I had anything of substance to the panel while we were talking about it. Mostly, uh, you, you did make some pretty funny jokes. We did, yeah, we did okay. Well, someone I think Emma Spann had said that. What was it? Someone had asked her. I think in privacy, right? Someone involved in baseball, maybe, or another sports writer. I don't know if, how how clear she was about it at first, but she said that someone, someone who was close to the game, had asked her if sabermetrics is cheating. Yeah. And I wondered aloud if maybe that That's were it, Ruben Amaro. Ruben Amaro. Yeah. yeah. I think she said that that was a uh, pitch that she got at Sports Illustrated. Someone wanted to write the article: Is sabermetrics cheating? Oh, okay. Oh, right, a pitch. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, is sabermetrics cheating, Dave? Uh, yes, I think it is. You do? No. Oh. <laughs> you know what I've started? Uh, well, of course, Ben Lindbergh, as you know, was one of the people on the panel there, and he was selling his book, a book which I had not yet purchased. So uh, you bought a copy? I bought a copy, and I'm uh, consuming it uh, voraciously. Like while we do the podcast? No. 
Okay. Although I prefer to be doing that. Than did doing you get that. a signed copy? I did. Yeah. 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 Neat. Yeah. And, uh, well, uh, what's interesting about the, that book about their preparation is that they, um, you know what, you and I were just talking about Stackcast and the formation of that. They did a lot of work in terms of attempt of acquiring new ways of collecting data. I think that the folks who produce, who provide, uh, Sport Vision, I think, provide yep. them with some high-speed cameras. Correct. For pitch effects. Yep. And then there's another program called something like BATS. Yes, that's the kind of uh, official tracking software Major League Baseball uses. Right. And so what uh, happens, a video comes in, and it's uh, somehow it's uh, easy to edit. You just you, and you, as the person who's editing the video, um, you can put place timestamps on it. Right. And you can say what sort of pitch a pitch was. Right. Although I think that uh, Lindbergh um, states pretty frankly that w- you know when he was employed by the Yankees, he did not particularly care for this duty. It's a BATS is an older older piece of software. Yeah, but and, uh, still gets the job done. Well, also I think maybe it doesn't list the uh, the velocity of the pitches is not listed. Mm. And that makes it hard to identify pitch type. It it does. It really does. Yeah. I mean, if you if you try and do it without the pitch type, because you can see the movement, yeah. but you say is that. Well, I mean, this is pretty obvious just from watching major league pitchers, right? Because Noah Syndergaard's changeup yeah. uh, is is faster than many pitchers' two seam fastball. Yeah, I know some teams have actually uh, had people doing job interviews uh, for like scouting positions uh, or even in analyst positions watch video without the uh, graphic overlay, so you don't get velocity readings, you don't. Um, you don't really get any help. You just have to watch the pitch on video, and you have to try and identify the type of pitch you just saw. And if you take away the velocity and the overlay, it quickly becomes clear that it is not so easy to do. Right. And then, of course, you always have the consideration of the camera angle, too. Right. And so, uh, like, you know, attempting to identify something like a cut fastball yeah. can, you know, can become very difficult, especially uh, because, of course, most of these cameras – uh, when you watch in like a minor league feed, for example, many of them are like, you know, halfway out in left field. And so if you have a left-hander pitching, and this is true of major league broadcasts too. I think probably for the Seattle Mariners, for example, a team that you've watched with some frequency in the past, at least, if not now, uh, if a left-hander is pitching in front of the Mariners camera, it's, uh, all it is, is it starts in the left-handed screen and ends up on the right hand of the screen. Yeah. You have no idea. You have no idea what kind of pitch it is. No, you don't. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, and maybe if you, you know, uh, you can eventually pick it up, but there's always going to be, uh, I think, is Parallax? Does Parallax exist there? That is a thing, yes. Yeah, I thought so. Okay. Also, oh, here's a, uh, here's a quasi-practical analytics question. I guess, uh, sort of bookend this, this edition of the program. Um, what is the most, what is the optimal way to feed a group of, feed a group of baseball idiots, baseball nerds? By and the did, pound. Did, huh? By the pound. Well, did we did we approach it ever this past weekend? Yeah, we we went to a uh, uh, barbecue barbecue place, place yeah. in uh, Red Hook on the outskirts of Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and uh, David Appleman and I had to like estimate how much meat and sides to order for what was seventeen or eighteen people, mm-hmm. and uh, I think we ended up. Doing a decent job. I mean, we ran out of food, but we didn't like waste food, mm-hmm. and I don't think anybody left there hungry. So no, I don't think so either. 
But yeah, we ordered, what is it, uh, an entire brisket. So that was seven, seven and a half pounds of brisket. Mm-hmm. And we ordered, uh, a couple pounds of chicken, a couple, a couple slabs of ribs, uh, a few other things, and then a bunch of sides. I don't, really, think that, I don't think that, I don't think that. A hefty amount of food. I don't, I, I don't, I do not pretend to have the most refined palate. Um, however, I will say this, um, the brisket at Hometown Barbecue, um, was tender. Yeah, it was it was well cooked. It was very tender, and in fact, so tender that when you would attempt to move it from the platter onto your it plate, it fell apart. Fell apart, yeah. But then, don't worry, still ate it. Oh yeah, nothing nothing wrong with falling apart brisket. Yeah, it's still edible. Okay, you have uh, fulfilled your obligation, Dave Cameron. Hooray! By the pound is the answer for that one. Okay, uh, well, thank you, Dave. You're welcome, Carson. That has been managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.